This is the Taiwanology podcast from Commonwealth Magazine, where we discuss Taiwan matters and why they matter to you. Coming to you from Taipei, the capital of the freest nation in Asia. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Taiwanology, a podcast hosted by me, Kuang Ying Liu from Commonwealth Magazine. So I'm very happy to be sitting here in Taipei's studio, and we have a really distinguished guest, which I will introduce later. So I'm going to show you some sound, some very special sound that we are going to hear on the Taipei streets. As the streets of Taiwan come alive with colorful flags and every corner boasts an election post, there is an unmistakable buzz in the air. Election fever has once again taken over. Since 1996, every four years, the people of Taiwan turn up at the voting booth to choose their leaders. So this is our topic for today. We turn our focus to the upcoming Taiwanese presidential election slated to happen in January 2024, which is less than five months away. That's really on the corner, actually. So stepping into the spotlight, when I wrote this script, there were only three candidates. But just this morning, by the time you hear this, it would be two weeks earlier. We have now four candidates. The first one is William Lai Qingde from the reigning DPP, Democratic Progressive Party, and we have Hou Youyi of the KMT and Ke Wenzhe representing the Taiwan People's Party. And this morning, the founder of Foxconn Group, Terry Go, the tech magnate, has declared his candidacy. So that came, I think, as a surprise, both for me and my guest today. So with geopolitical tensions rising over the Taiwan Strait, some observers are calling this election possibly the most pivotal one for Taiwan's destiny. Why would they say that? And what's really at stake? And most important of all, what are the challenges for the next leader, whoever that may be? Very fortunate to guide us through this maze. We're really thrilled to be joined by Karis Templeman, a good friend of mine. So he's sitting in the studio today. He is research fellow at the Hoover Institution and lecturer at the Center for East Asian Studies at Stanford University. Outside of Stanford, he is a member of the U.S.-Taiwan Next Generation Working Group. Welcome, Karis. Thanks for having me. Okay. So I'm really happy to have Karis today because he has a super packed schedule and he is flying back to the U.S. tonight, right? Correct. So could you tell us a little bit first about what brought you to Taiwan this time? What was the purpose? So I was here as part of a group from the Hoover Institution called the Veteran Fellows Program, and that's retired military officers who are associated with the Hoover Institution who have a, some kind of project they're working on. And part of the program involves a trip somewhere abroad, and the group votes on where they want to go. And they can pick and choose. Yeah. So there's a discussion among the group about various places that are of interest to U.S. US security policy or national interests. Last year, they went to the Republic of Georgia mm -hmm. near Russia, 
And this year, they unanimously voted to come to Taiwan. So they asked me to help lead a group here and mm -hmm. to show them around. Right. And where did you visit? Well, we started in Taipei, and we paid a visit to the two leading political parties uh, and walked around Taipei, ate some good food, and then we went to Jinmen and spent about 30 hours there. We just happened to coincide with the 823 Artillery Battle Memorial oh, wow. ceremony. And, and then for the last day and a half, we were in Kaohsiung. So we got to see two, three fairly different places in the Republic of China and Taiwan. Right. What was their impression in general? Uh, I think they came away really impressed with Taiwan. They, they were pleasantly surprised by a lot of things here. And in part, just how people go about their everyday lives. Taipei is a well-functioning city. You know, the hustle and bustle of the place right. is, is And that normal. there were no tanks on the street. There's no tanks on the street. There's no PLA missiles flying overhead. You know, everything is calm and normal. Right. And not everyone is practicing how to use a gun or something like that. Correct. So, yeah, right. Government. Right. So I'm happy that they had a, such a nice impression. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. You have been studying Taiwan for over 20 years. How did you make that decision? Well, I wanted to study China. I was interested in China's politics and its rise into you know major power. And I decided I wanted to go there. And the study abroad program had four choices in Greater China, Harbin, Nanjing, Beijing, and Taipei. Oh. And I decided I wanted to see both sides of the strait. And I went to Beijing first, and I didn't like Beijing. Why was that? This was over 20 years ago now. It was just a, a big, crowded, polluted, challenging city to get used Early to. Early 2000s. Early 2000s, right. It was developing fast, but things were changing very rapidly, and it was overwhelming. It was my first time in Asia, so I wasn't really used to the place. Okay. And so followed following Beijing? Right. So I went to Beijing first, and then I came to Taipei, and everything that I didn't like about Beijing was much better in Taipei. So the MRT system here at the time was much more advanced than Beijing's metro system. I was in the regular student dormitory, whereas in Beijing, they kept all the foreign students kind of in their own dormitory away from the regular students. Segregation. The segregation. So my, my friends at Beida were mostly Koreans or Japanese or Americans rather than Chinese. Right. I'm, I'm surprised you had nice things to say about Taiwan student dormitory, but we <laughs> that's a topic for another podcast. So, okay, so since we're talking about election today, I think our listeners probably know that Taiwan is a relatively young democracy. We have had about five presidential elections. This is going to be our fifth one, if I'm counting right. So for, for those who are new to Taiwan's political landscape, could you tell us about the evolution of Taiwan's democratic processes and how maybe it's different from other democracies in the region? Right. So Taiwan is one of the most liberal democracies in the region. And in fact, in the world, for its age, it's actually quite robust, quite an impressive democracy. The difference with the other democracies in the region, Taiwan's transition to democracy was very gradual. In other cases, there was a people power revolution in the Philippines that took place over a matter of days, and then suddenly there was a democracy in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. In Thailand, there were a series of coups. In Indonesia, there was a financial crisis. The old regime collapsed, and then democracy kind of grew out of that. Unlike those cases, Taiwan 
emerged very gradually and in a very kind of institution-preserving way. Mm-hmm. So in other words, another way to put this is that the Republic of China Constitution, which was created and passed in 1947, is still in effect today in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we contrast Taiwan with Korea, Korea is on their sixth Republic of Korea, and they have had a new constitution in 1987. And so Taiwan's institutions carried forward from the martial law era into the democratic era and were adapted for this new era, but they were not abolished and rewritten. Hmm. So what do you think, what that says about Taiwan's democracy, that it's so gradual and some people have called it a very unique case because it was a largely bloodless revolution. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, in many ways that is an advantageous way to get to democracy because it's not particularly politically disruptive to make that gradual transition. And Taiwan's economy actually did not suffer a downturn because of the transition to democracy, unlike, say, Indonesia or Thailand or some of these other cases in Eastern Europe. In addition, the consistency or the regularity with which elections were held, that pattern was put in place well before democracy. And so the challenge in Taiwan was really to move up. The local elections were competitive and contested uh, even in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And the push for democracy was to expand the number of offices that were subject to direct election by the Taiwanese people. And so when they first elected the president directly in 1996, that was actually not that much of a leap from directly electing, say, the governor of Taiwan in 1994 Mm -hmm. or the mayor of Taipei. Yeah. So looking back, really, all these elections counted. And I forgot to mention, so Karas here is actually an expert in Taiwan's political system and elections. So how did you choose that topic? And whenever I had to cover local elections, even I find it very challenging because there are so many different factions and conflicting interests. And some people are supporting some other people. And sometimes you don't know why. And sometimes it could be arbitrary. Why did you choose to study election? Well, I think the, the complexity of it is part of what attracted me to it. And then to return to something I said earlier In China, in the PRC, you don't have competitive elections. And so Taiwan, coming from a China politics lens, Taiwan is a fascinating case study where Taiwan has developed its own unique political culture, but the campaign slogans and the debates and the rallies, they're all using Chinese to ask for votes, to count the votes, to put out campaign ads and things. And and so that To me, initially, at least, that was the hook. It's like, you know, you can have democratic electoral politics in a Chinese-speaking society. Yeah, so that's actually a pretty unique case, I would say. So coming back to talk about the upcoming presidential election, why would some people say that it's going to be very crucial and very decisive? Well, people say this about every presidential election in Taiwan. I can remember 1996 being a crucial election. Yeah, okay. and from 2000, day one, from, Yes. So this is no different from, every, from the seven past presidential elections that we've had so far. You can make a case that this is a particularly even more crucial, even more pivotal election than in the past because the pressure from the PRC on Taiwan is 
arguably greater than it has been in a long time, if ever. And the PRC really does not want to see the DPP re-elected for a third term. Because it's never happened before for a party to rule for a third term. That's right, yeah. So there have been three transitions of power in Taiwan in 2000, 2008, and 2016 from one party to the other. And if that doesn't happen this time around, it suggests maybe a break with the previous pattern. That, And in particular, it raises some questions about the long-term viability of what is now the main opposition party, the KMT. Yeah, I think this is really a dire time for the KMT. But you're saying the threat from the PRC and it brings back some memory. When I was very little, I think in it was before the first ever Taiwanese presidential election. There was some kind of missile crisis in 1995. So looking back, I felt the threat level perceived at the time, I felt it was higher than now, maybe. But if I may offer in- interpretation, I think the major difference between now and then was that there is really heightened attention on Taiwan by Western countries, political parties, and analysts compared to 1995. So what do you say to that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of attention on Taiwan today, more so than there has been in decades. I.e., 95-96 was a pretty uh, prominent set of events, and there was certainly a lot of worry in the U.S. that we would end up in a conflict with China over Taiwan. Today, that worry, I think, is it, it's less immediate, but there's, I think, deeper concern in the United States about the balance of power across the strait. So one big difference is that in 1996, the PLA was in no way, shape, or form a modern army. It Even if it wanted to invade Taiwan, it couldn't, just didn't have the capability or the training. Today, that's much less certain. And there's a lot of worry in the U.S. that the PLA has achieved a much more modern set of capabilities to the point where even if the U.S. wanted to intervene to prevent a cross-strait invasion or some other kind of military action against Taiwan, we would not be able to prevent it. Hmm. Right. So I'm sure there are a lot of pundits who are watching this election very closely. So since we're talking about Beijing, we need to talk about the increasing tensions between Taiwan and China. How do you perceive China's influence on Taiwan's past elections? And has Beijing's stance really influenced voter sentiments over the years? Well, in general, when Beijing expresses open displeasure with one candidate or another, it backfires on them. The candidate they don't want to win benefits from their criticism. Okay. So in 1996, they engaged in military exercises and live missile exercises and firings to protest against Li Denghui and to try to intimidate Taiwan voters into voting against Li. And Li actually won that election by more than was forecast. So there's this kind of boomerang effect where mm-hmm. the the PRC side will criticize a candidate and then voters want to stick it to Beijing, so they mm-hmm. vote more for that right. candidate. Right, so the tactic backfires. Yeah, definitely backfires. So Beijing, I think, has learned from painful past experience and is likely to lay low and to do less publicly, at least to try to influence this election. 
And that's probably the best move from their perspective. Right. What would be the new improved influence tactics? Well, it's helpful if they do things from their perspective, if it's covert, if it's non-transparent, if they're trying to influence Taiwan voters, that it be done through kind of intermediaries in the Taiwanese political space rather than a direct messenger from Beijing saying, vote for candidate X or else. And so they've gotten more sophisticated in how they try to influence Taiwan public opinion. So they're evolving as well. And and now we're going to talk about another very influential country in the election, which is the U.S. I think people who have been watching the campaigns in Taiwan know that all the candidates, they all have to visit the U.S., you know, at some point. We have seen Ke Wenzhe, Terry Go, William Lai. They have all visited the U.S. And now I think Hou Yi is probably in the U.S., this couple of days. So why is the U.S. so important in Taiwan's election? Well, the U.S. is by far Taiwan's most important security partner, and it's a major trading partner as well. And if it weren't for U.S. intervention in the 1950s, Taiwan would not exist today as a de facto independent state. So right there, there's this long-standing, deep bilateral relationship Second, Taiwan's ability to stand up to the PRC is really dependent on continued support and cooperation with the U.S. And the United States' interests in this relationship do not necessarily align with, at least not completely align with Taiwan's own interests. And there have been challenges in the past with a Taiwan leader who takes cross-strait policy in a direction that US that the US side objects to or doesn't see as helpful. And that kind of friction actually can work against Taiwan's interests as well. And so each candidate out of an abundance of caution has tried to introduce themselves to the American side, reassure the US that they can be a stable hand at the tiller of cross-strait relations and that they are aware of America's interests and priorities in the relationship. Right. So we will take a break now, and Carlos will return when we do on Taiwanology, where we will talk about how these candidates are perceived by Americans. Welcome back to Taiwanology. I'm your host, Guang Ying Liu from Commonwealth Magazine. Today we have Carlos Templeman from the Hoover Institution and Stanford University with us today at the studio. We were just talking about the necessity of the presidential candidates from Taiwan to visit the U.S. Some people called that an interview, and I think that's pretty interesting, right? So we talked about the interviews they did, and also uh, what I'm curious about is, so Lai Qingde, Terry Go, and Ke Wenzhe, they have all visited the U.S., how are they perceived by the political pundits and politicians in the U.S.? Well, I think the most important audience in the U.S. is the U.S. government and the members of the Biden administration and secondarily members of Congress. So let me start with their views. I think Lai is the best known. He's a known quantity because he's been part of the Tsai administration, both as premier and then as vice president. The DPP has been the ruling party for the last seven years. And so there's a a high level of familiarity between the U.S. government and Congress and the DPP and Lai. 
Ho is almost unknown. He had a very low profile, even as mayor of New Taipei in the U.S., and he doesn't have much international experience at all. And so I think, generally speaking, he has more work to do to introduce himself to people in the U.S. who may be managing U.S. policy towards Taiwan and the PRC. And how about Ke Wenzhe? Ke Wenzhe is a little more familiar in Washington because he's been mayor of Taipei. He's founded a new political party. That party has been around for several years now. And it's been clear for a while that he was likely to be a presidential candidate this time around. And so there's been a fair amount of engagement with scholars, officials, members of Congress, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So he's somewhere in the middle, I would say. And then we have to ask about the newest contender, Terry Go. I think he's probably also well-known in the U.S., but as a businessman. Right. He hasn't ever run for political office in Taiwan before. And to the extent people know him in the U.S., it is as the former chairman and the founder of Foxconn, which builds your iPhone. And he doesn't have a strong political reputation in the U.S. yet. I think he's mostly unknown there in terms of his politics, but that is likely to change very dramatically over the next couple of weeks since he has just declared that he is going to run for president. Right. And since you're talking about the U.S. government, so what would the like the Congress or the senators look for when they are evaluating these candidates? So I think there's two things that are important, and they're a bit contradictory. So the first is the United States has a deep interest in Taiwan's own security preparation. So its defense, its weapons procurement, its training. And that interest has risen pretty dramatically over the last eight years. Uh, And so a lot of people in Washington are very concerned about Taiwan's ability to defend itself in the case of a threat, a military threat from the PRC. Uh, So uh, the first thing is, can the candidates reassure uh, people in Washington that they will continue to strengthen Taiwan's own defenses? The second is a bit contradictory. It's can the candidates reassure the United States they won't provoke Beijing or do anything that leads to unnecessary tensions across the strait? And not everybody shares both of those concerns in Washington, but there's enough of people who have concerns about one or both issues that the candidates have to worry about both when they go to the U.S. and when they talk uh, both privately and publicly about their own policies and positions. Right. So I'm not going to ask you about your assessment of the, these candidates, but there's one thing I, I noticed about Vice President Lai's visit to the U.S. was how uneventful that was. You know, I, I knew that, yes, he was going to the U.S., and then I sort of forgot about it. His visits or his remarks didn't make any news or anything that I noticed. So I only knew that when he came back and had a some kind of a meet and greet with the Taiwan Correspondents Club, and I realized, oh, he's back, <laughs> and then and then he made some remarks and nothing drastic, nothing dramatic. So I think that was a pretty smart move, right? So what kind of strategy do you think Lai is using? Well, I think that was a success for him. I agree, and I think the reason is. He has a reputation from his past actions and remarks 
as being to the pro-independence left of Tsai Ing-wen. So he's more likely to promote separation, permanent separation from China for Taiwan's future. And uh, there are lots of people in the U.S. when they hear Lai Qingda's name, that's the first thing they think of. And so he had some work to do to reassure people in the U.S. that he was going to follow in the footsteps of Tsai Ing-wen and be as moderate and careful in his cross-strait approach as possible. Right. Yeah. Some people are saying that he needs to be Tsai Ing-wen 2.0, right? Uh, yeah. And I think from the U.S. perspective, Tsai Ing-wen has been the best Taiwan president the U.S. will ever get. And she set a very high bar, and it's up to Lai to try to meet that bar. Right. Which brings me to another topic. So for Commonwealth Magazine, I know my coworkers have been working around the clock trying to get interviews with all the candidates, but most of all, they wanted to talk to Lai, Vice President Lai. But, you know, so far... They haven't been successful, and uh, you know I know that many media outlets are also trying to talk to him, but he has been pretty slow or hesitant. But we just saw that he gave an exclusive interview to to Bloomberg. Why do you think he made that choice? I'm not entirely sure why Bloomberg, but I can speculate. Bloomberg is an international news agency with a lot of resources. They've actually got a surprising number of reporters here just stationed to cover Taiwan politics in the upcoming election. So they've got the resources to do it. They have a reputation as being apolitical or at least nonpartisan in their coverage. And so maybe he thought they would provide a more professional, nonpartisan, even-handed environment for an interview. Mm, yeah. So I have to agree with you. Given that a semiconductor is such an important part in Taiwan's economy, and Bloomberg really has put a lot of efforts into covering that industry as well. Right. So my next question is about the sort of the political climate of Taiwan. So we know that the two main parties are the Democratic, the, the DPP and the KMT, the Green and the Blue. They have been the dominant political forces in Taiwan for decades. We know that there have been some attempts of third force, essentially. So we have had the, the Social Democratic parties, the Green Party, Tree Party, and various other parties. But it seems that the two-party dynamic is pretty hard to, to break. What's your assessment of that, the two-party system, and how will the thing be evolving? Right. So Taiwan is unusual in that although it's a young democracy, it also has a very institutionalized, pretty stable party system. So it looks like a much older democracy than it is if you just look at the parties. So there's high partisanship, there's well-organized political parties, they have grassroots chapters around the island, they have strong control over their nominations, and all of that kind of makes it hard for new political parties with new agendas, new new candidates to break in and really have a chance at winning elections. So you mean it's a little bit like the U.S. that with two parties dominate? In some ways it is, yeah. The U.S. is, I think, an extreme case, but Taiwan is not that far behind, actually, the U.S., right. or not that, not that far off. Okay. Are, are there uh, comparable systems that's also like this two-party dynamic? 
A few around the world, but not many. One thing that the U.S. and Taiwan share in common is their presidential systems, and having a, a direct presidential election does tend to reshape the party system in a way that a parliamentary regime would not. So imagine if the largest party in the legislature selected the leader of Taiwan. That would potentially lead to some different sorts of dynamics in the campaign. Right, yeah. Um, okay, has to do with our presidential system, I guess. And also, one thing that's interesting, I wanted to bring it up. In your previous interview with another reporter, that you made a point, I think, that was very interesting, that Taiwan has never seen a party win three terms consecutively. So we would always have two terms, two terms. So why do you think that is? Well, the simplest answer is that it's just random. We've only had two opportunities for a party to win a third term in power, and they've lost in both cases. But if we assume that it's just a coin flip in those cases, you wouldn't be that surprised if you flipped a coin and it came up tails 50, twice. 50-50. 50-50 okay. twice, right? But the more sophisticated and subtle answer here is I think in a system like Taiwan's where you've got a very clear ruling party and a very clear opposition and no overlap between the two. They're clearly opponents. After eight years in power, a lot of voters, for all kinds of reasons, kind of get tired of the ruling party and are looking around for an alternative. And the only alternative typically is the big opposition party. Right. And so that's actually hard for a ruling party, as it is in the U.S. actually, to sustain itself in power for more than two terms. And if you look statistically around the world's democracies, the likelihood of a ruling party losing power, certainly in a presidential regime, peaks at right about eight to 10 years. Right. Which brings me to my next question, which is entirely hypothetical. So if the DPP's vice president Lai wins the election, it would be the DPP's third term. If that happens, what do you think it means for Taiwan's democracy? Well, I think it's too early to tell. I think there are some other factors that also will play into that. One is what happens in the legislature. If the DPP loses its majority there, it's actually, it had a majority that it won in 2016. It held onto that in 2020. If it loses that in 2024, I think that's less dramatic than if it wins, it keeps that majority or it even increases it. If it increases it, that suggests a dire prognostication for the KMT's future. If they couldn't win more seats in this environment, when a lot of people are pretty unhappy with the ruling party, then what conditions could the KMT possibly do better? <laughs> right. So it, it's too early to tell. And the, the other complicating factor is that there are right now four declared candidates for the presidency. And if all four remain on the ballot up until election day, it's not necessarily a direct one-to-one -one correlation between unhappiness with the ruling party and your presidential vote. Mm -hmm. And so Lai could win re-election for the DPP with, say, 40% or under of the vote because all the other candidates split the rest. Right. Then even if he has won, then the, the maybe the voters would not be as unified because there will still be, people can still say that nearly 70% didn't vote for you. Yeah. And this this actually happened in 2000 when Chen Shui-bian won. More than 60% of the electorate voted for someone else. Mm -hmm. And so 
the interpretation of that election was that the DPP got lucky, right? They won probably before their time. Right. Yeah. So they, they would say that, oh, probably doesn't have his mandate. Yeah, definitely does not have a mandate. And it doesn't, it, it, I would not write the KMT or the TPP or any other party off simply because they couldn't win during a four-way race where three candidates split the opposition vote. Yeah. The scene is definitely getting crowded. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to watching the debates if they're ever going to be some debates. That would be interesting. So, well, okay, whoever wins the election, eventually we can still talk about the future. So we will have a new president early next year anyways. What would be the biggest challenges and maybe opportunities for Taiwan and the new leader in the coming years? Right. So the biggest, the obvious challenge is re managing relations with the PRC. That is front and center in every presidential election in Taiwan's democratic history. And I don't think this one will be any different. But the less obvious answer is Taiwan is facing a bunch of domestic policy challenges. So wages are low, real estate prices are extremely high. A lot of young people feel like they have no future here. There's a, I think, a broken energy policy where Taiwan is phasing out nuclear power, trying to ramp up renewables. That process hasn't gone very well, or it's been slow. And so as a consequence, Taiwan is importing more and more liquid natural gas mm -hmm. that is contributing to a larger carbon footprint and also it's a major security vulnerability. And so the DPP has been responsible for that policy for eight years. Whoever the next leader is, whether it's DPP or someone else, needs to confront that issue head on because it, I think it's unsustainable. And so lots of kind of domestic issues that the foreign audience looking at Taiwan in this election probably is paying very little attention to, but that are I think ultimately equally as important as cross-strait relations. Right. So, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, the energy policy, which is my beat, by the way. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, my favorite topic. I could go on for days. And also stagnant wages. And something that people have been talking about is the depopulation crisis, I think. Mm. yeah. So people are not having kids and our immigration policy is not very progressive. So I think that's also something that the new leader will have to face. Agreed. Yeah. And I'll just say Taiwan's immigration policy makes no sense to me. Taiwan desperately needs more young people. There are lots of young people who see Taiwan as a great opportunity to advance their careers as people want to move here and work here and they're young and energetic and smart. And Taiwan, for the sake of its long-term security and survival, I think should open its doors to more immigrants. Well, I hope the new leader, whoever that may be, will be able to come up with some new policies. Well, I think now would be also a very good opportunity for me to 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 talk about uh, a call for op-eds by the Commonwealth English website. So we invite whoever is interested in Taiwan, if you're going to write a letter to the new president that we're going to elect next year, you could contribute. Kairos, you could also contribute if you have the time, maybe tonight in, during your flight. <laughs> your, On my flight home. Sure. I'll whip one up. <laughs> yes. Your long flight and whoever that's listening, regardless of where you live or your nationality, if you care about Taiwan and Taiwan's future, you could write a letter to 
the new president. So the we have all the details on our website, the Commonwealth Magazine English website. So we are inviting anyone interested to submit your op-eds. So it's been such a pleasure to have Karis today in our show. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. It's been great to chat with you. Great, and I have a feeling that around election time, maybe we'll be able to meet again. Oh, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Election time is always my favorite time in Taiwan. Yeah, very, very exciting time. It's one of my favorite times too. If you like our show, please leave a review or write us an email. Maybe share your thoughts on the presidential election that's coming up. Most importantly, check out Commonwealth Magazine's English website for the latest news about Taiwan. Follow Taiwanology wherever you get your podcasts. This show is produced by Wei Ru Wang, edited by Ian Huang. I'm your host, Kuang Ying Liu. Talk to you soon.